this morning, 1 Kings 12, verses 25 through 33. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and resided there. He went out from there and built Penuel. Then Jeroboam said to himself, Now the kingdom may well revert to the house of David, and if this people continues to go up and offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, the heart of this people will turn again to their master, King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me, and they will return to King Rehoboam of Judah. So the king took counsel, and he made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel, the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one at Bethel and before the other as far as Dan. He also made houses on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not Levites. Jeroboam appointed a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the festival that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. He did so in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And then he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month that he alone had devised. And he appointed a festival for the people of Israel, and he went up to the altar to offer incense. Even in a difficult text, we say, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God can have a seat. Let me pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So how are you doing after this week? Loaded question, right? I know I stayed up late on Tuesday into Wednesday. I'm sure many of you did looking at a map much like this one, glued to your TV. I don't know how into the broadcast you are. Every four years, I I really actually kind of enjoy it. I think it's kind of a fascinating sitting in the midst of history going on. I love the geography of it. There are certain parts of the broadcast that always kind of bore me to tears, but there's this one thing every four years that gets my attention. After some sort of fast-paced information on, on how the map is changing and, and, and some county near Philadelphia or, or Atlanta that we never even knew existed until now, somebody goes, hey, we have just a minute here. Let me ask you to some expert, what, what's the big picture? What are you seeing here tonight? What does this map mean? What are, what are we learning about our country? And I don't know if you picked up on what the answer was over and over again on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. The answer was, we're more divided than ever. Did you hear that numerous times? We're more divided than ever. You know, our nation has always been one that has had differences and division. This is not new. In many ways, our democracy is built on our ability to navigate difference and division. But when we look at maps like this, even on the micro level of congressional districts and, and counties and so on, we see a nation that is deeply divided. Now, maybe you walked in this morning and you are, you are jovial about how things turned out. Maybe you're downtrodden about how things turned out. My hope is that something that we could agree on this morning is that these markers of division are something that we all grieve, right? 
There's another map I want to show you of a different kingdom, another divided nation. It's actually the divided nation of Israel. You see, in 930 B.C., Israel changed from a united kingdom, united under one king, to a divided one with two kings and two different nations. How did this happen? How did they arrive here? And big picture, what does this map mean and what are we learning from it? So for those of you who weren't with us last week, we began our four-week series entitled, We Want a King. Those words come from 1 Samuel 8, where the Israelites demand a king to rule over them, despite the fact that they already have a pretty good leadership model in place with these judges, and they already have God, Yahweh, the, the firstborn of creation, the one who is at the very beginning, who is, who is beyond all time. They already have him as their king. But the people persist. And what does God do? He grants them a king. I made the case last week that we've used the word unprecedented more than, than ever before, and that's like the word of 2020, but I actually want to say that what we're experiencing is not unprecedented. In fact, there's a lot of biblical precedents for political division and confusion and mistrust, even things like pandemics. There's biblical precedents for this and, 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 and all the uncertainty that we're experiencing. But as I said last week, if there is biblical precedence, which there is, then there must also be biblical wisdom for us as well. So I want to pick up where we left off last week. The people ask for a king, which you might remember is a rejection of them, is a rejection of God as their king. And God even says so. They want to be like other nations with a king on a throne that they can see, they can identify, they can control, they can manage that's going to go out and fight battles for them. But Yahweh does not punish them for this request, even though it's a rejection. He yields to this request out of love for them, to stay in relationship with them. And I made the case last week that we so often do the same to God. The main point from last week is one of the hallmarks of a divided kingdom is that we reject God when we place our hope in earthly leaders. That's one of the hallmarks of a divided kingdom. One of the reasons that we are so very divided is because of the ways that we misplace our hope. Instead of being unified around God, we divide ourselves along the lines of earthly leaders and parties. But here's the interesting thing, and let me nuance this. This is not a rejection of God and everything related to God wholesale. It wasn't for Israel, and it's actually not now. Mark Sayers, one of my favorite authors, in his brilliant book, Disappearing Church, looks at Western culture as a, as, a, as a cultural sociologist, religious sociologist, and he says this, what I see in Western culture is we want the benefits of the kingdom of God without the king. That's what I see in the Western culture. So it's not like it's a, a wholesale rejection of everything related to God, Yahweh. Certainly this is true of Israel, right? They wanted security and victory and, and legitimization and prosperity and identity but they looked to earthly leaders, a king, rather than to God. And when I look at our polarized culture, when I look at that map of red and blue blocks that seem to be so at odds with one another, even with your eyeballs, right? The, the, those colors seem at odds with one another. I see what a lie that is. Let me just call it a lie. That war between red and blue is really so phony. This idea that conservatives and progressives are so different from one another is a sham. Because both groups do the exact same thing. They seek the benefits of the kingdom of God without the king. They both make the highest good things like individual freedom and happiness and self-definition and self-expression. They both put hope in false utopia if people could just all agree with what I believe. 
They are both suspicious of institutions and authorities and anyone that would place restrictions upon them. They both seek security and blessing and prosperity. Whether you are a human rights activist or a free market economist or an anarchist or a small government conservative, you all have something in common, a high value on individualism and personal freedom, a low value on restrictions, and a high value on happiness and comfort. So we want peace and prosperity and liberty and freedom and blessing, but we reject the only person who can give it to us. We all, as divided as we might seem, are really actually quite united in the fact that we seek the benefits of the kingdom while sidestepping obedience to the king. Israel did it 3,000 years ago, and we, we're, we're doing it here. <laughs> and yet again, good news in all this, is God does not reject us for this. He agrees to Israel's demand for a king because he loves them. In fact, Israel was united for a period of 90 years under three different kings. They call it the, the period of the United Kingdom. I want to run through these three kings quickly. I realize that each of these, this would make like a great sermon series for you know, months on end, but I want to run through these really, really quickly. The first king is King Saul. He's the first king of the United Kingdom. What were his qualifications for the job? Well, 1 Samuel 9 tells us the qualifications were this. He was good-looking, and he was a head taller than everybody else. So he was tall and good-looking. What does that tell us? He fits a description, right, of a king who, who people can admire and look up to. He was a gifted warrior. He was someone who, who had sort of the persona where they go, this guy is the kind of guy who can lead us into battle. But shortly into his, ten his tenure, he began to live into the very worst of Samuel's predictions about what kind of king he was going to be. Brash, foolish, undisciplined, Saul became an ineffective leader due to disobedience to God, but more than that, paranoia. That's the word that I use when I look at the, at the life of Saul, just a paranoid person, crippling paranoia. And it had tragic consequences for the people of God. In his 20 years of, of leadership at the end of that, basically the people of God are on the brink of totally falling apart. And then enters the second king, one you know a little bit better, King David. He was the one who succeeded Saul. He was Saul's favorite harp player. Um, he would, Saul would bring him in to play harp in his courts. And David's qualifications for kingship were kind of the opposite of Saul, actually. He was not tall. He was not a warrior at the time that he was anointed. He was young, and he was humble. He was just a boy. But what was he? He was obedient, and he was honest, and he was faithful. It wasn't about the looks. It was about the heart for David. And he served for 40 years, and even to this day, our Jewish friends look back on those years of David's reign, and they say this was really the golden age of Israel, a season of great favor. David's nickname was man after God's own heart. That's a pretty good moniker, right? We could, we could aspire to that. But even the man after God's own heart, late in his reign, what happens? He has a moral failing. He sleeps with a woman named Bathsheba, who's not his wife, and then he he seeks to, to cover up his indiscretion by, by doing all sorts of sin, which leads to more sin, which leads to more sin, which leads to death and murder. And he ends his tenure as a broken man, alone, dealing with the consequences of his sin that are affecting his people and his family, and he's seeking deep repentance for all of his sin. The third and, and final king of Israel was David's son, Solomon. If there's a word to describe Solomon, what is it? Wisdom. Yeah, wisdom. He's wise. 
He's renowned for his wisdom. If anybody is like, hey, this is the guy who can deliver on his platform, Solomon's the guy. He built the long-awaited temple. No other king had been able to do that. He acquires incredible wealth. The economy is buzzing. He's turned Israel into a world power. He is a truly gifted leader. But he loves foreign women. He takes them as his wife over and over and over again. And what do they do? The scripture tells us that they bring their gods, lowercase g gods, with them, and he falls in love with their gods. And he adopts them as his own, and he turns away from Yahweh, even to the point of going up to the high places and sacrificing on pagan altars. And this leads to his undoing, and in 931, when he dies, Israel splits into those two nations, north and south. The northern kingdom of Israel follows his son Jeroboam, and the southern kingdom of Judah follows his son Rehoboam. So Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And the southern kingdom has the temple in Jerusalem. They have the holy city of Jerusalem, and they keep some sort of semblance of relationship with God for a while. But the northern kingdom under under Jeroboam completely forsakes Yahweh, even to the point of what we read this morning, where Jeroboam makes this, this golden calf and says, you don't need to go to Jerusalem anymore. This is God. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt. Worship, worship this calf instead. So as we look at this map, how did the people of God get here? Well, the people of God asked for a king, and God gave them kings. And each of them had good qualities, and each of them had bad qualities, much like our earthly leaders here today that we are presented. But when the people seek the benefits of the kingdom of God without the proper king, this is what happens. The people put their hope in earthly kings who fail them because they're human. They couldn't, they can never match up to God and what God can offer. And they become idols. Those leaders become idols for the people of Israel. And then those people, those leaders, lead the people into further idolatry, which leads me to the second hallmark, main point of the sermon today. A hallmark of a divided kingdom is that they replace God with lesser leaders And those leaders become idols that lead the people into more idols. (laughs) John Tyson, in his wonderful new book, Beautiful Resistance, talks about idolatry. And he defines idolatry simply as worship of an unworthy object. Worship of an unworthy object. Or anything that gets elevated to the level of God in our minds and in our hearts. The, The kingdom of Israel was divided because the people of God elevated earthly kings and what they could deliver for them to a level that only God deserves. And then those earthly kings, they led the people into further idolatry. So when I read the story of Jeroboam at Bethel and at Dan with those golden calves, it it seems ridiculous, doesn't it, that the people of God would fall for this? Would fall for this idea of golden calves? I mean, aren't these smart people? That they would believe that these golden statues which he just made were indeed the God that brought them out of Egypt? That's crazy, right? It seems so primitive. It's almost like cavemen or something. Like, what? like, who would believe that? And it's easy for us to say, well, that was then. That was, you know, ancient primitive world. But this is now. We don't bow down to golden calves. We don't fall into idolatry like this. But we need to be aware of our tendency to do the exact same thing. The tendency to replace God with an unworthy object. In fact, I think we're more enslaved to idols than our ancient forerunners because Their idols at least were concrete things. Our idols aren't golden statues, but they're just like the reality that we swim in. They're things like work and money and status and sex and patriotism. Our our political environment doesn't only fail to resist these common idols, they actually encourage us to adopt them as much as possible. 
So if we're going to resist replacing God with idols, we need to be aware of the hold that idols have over us and over our lives. Tyson uh, really helpfully distinguishes between two kind of idols. It was really helpful for me to sort of understand. The two kinds are heart idols and cultural idols. Heart idols are things that are really hard to quantify, but they take, they take places of prominence in our hearts, replacing God's rightful place, in, 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 especially in our values, our affections, our, our, the way we think, our mind. Idols can be things like ideologies that we hold too deeply, or, or things like fear, or a need for affection, or a need for approval, or a grudge, unforgiveness that we hold, or, or, or our own sort of striving for intellect, or our woundedness, where it's easier to hold on to those things than to allow God to have them. They, they can easily become idols for us because we set our hearts on these things rather than God. They're the parts of our hearts that we haven't yet surrendered to God. So instead, these affections, these, these kind of idols, heart idols, take over, and they become idols for us, objects of worship. Cultural idols are a little different. They are things that are at the center of our culture, things that are what Tyson calls condensed symbols, so small things that embody much larger meaning. I think of things like sports teams, or the stock market, or fashion, or celebrity culture, or pop culture, or maybe most of all like social progress, right? These are seemingly small things that can hold incredible sway over our hearts and our minds. They make us ask these kind of questions. So if you've asked these kind of questions, you're probably dealing with a cultural idol. Do I fit in? Will I be left out? Where do I land? What team do I claim? Do I make more or less than the person next to me? Do I look good? Am I in the know? Am I part of the larger conversation? Am I on the right side of history? These are ever-changing idols that culture creates and, 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 and props up, and they offer to us, and they can easily replace the space that God desires. So one thing that we all, red, blue, and, and in between, I think, have in common is that we are liable to replace God with heart idols and cultural idols. And when we look at the divided kingdom, we see a people who made idols out of their leaders, and then those leaders led them into deeper levels of idolatry. They become more and more divided. Their, their, their leaders become less and less mindful of God. And with the exception of one notable king that we're going to highlight next week, both in the north and the south, scripture tells us that king after king after king sought after their own gain and replaced God with idols and went up to the high places to make sacrifices on pagan altars. Idolatry is one of the hallmarks of a divided kingdom. And I think it's one of the hallmarks of our divided kingdom too. But here's the thing. We as followers of Christ have an opportunity to flip the script here. We as followers of Christ have the opportunity to be uniters, peacemakers, bridge builders, voices of reason in our own divided kingdom. But we cannot do it if we hang on to our idols. So what are we to do? Well, I, I want to offer two things in closing today that we, we can do. First is we need to recognize how powerful those idols are and understand the sway that they have over us. So if we're casual with heart idols and cultural items, we do so to our own detriment. These are not mute, dead, inanimate idols. They are idols that hold incredible emotional and spiritual sway over us. 
Paul, in uh, the first chapter of Romans, which is all about idolatry, by the way, says this, this little line that stuck with me this week, their foolish hearts were darkened. Or as David Foster Wallace puts it, pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. He goes on to say that if you worship money, you will never have enough. If you worship beauty and sexual allure, you will feel ugly. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. If you worship intelligence, you will end up feeling stupid. You see, idols have that powerful effect over us. They change us. They darken us. They fight for our affections. And God stands in opposition to the idols in our lives, not because he's so personally offended that we would bow down to them. I think he knows our proclivity to do that. He opposes and hates idols because he knows the damage that they do to us. And he loves us. He doesn't want us to go down that path. He understands the power that they have over us. So let's identify the idols that we tend towards, but also recognize that these are not innocuous things. They are powerful forces that replace God and pull us away from God. Second thing that we can do is we can assess where our hope lies. We can assess where our hope lies. I've talked a ton about misplaced hope in the last couple weeks. Our misplaced hope in earthly leaders or in political party or in the idols of our time. But what is hope? Good place to end a sermon, talking about hope, right? Well, I think we have difficulty in the English language with the word hope because we get it mixed up with the word wish. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. You hear lines like, I hope something good happens today, or I hope this meeting goes well, or I hope I win the lottery. All three of those are not examples of hoping. Those are wishing. None of those are hope. Eugene Peterson ably defines the difference between wishing and hoping in his magnificent little devotional book, Living the Message, when he says, wishing is something all of us do. It projects what we want or think we need into the future. Just because we wish for something good or holy, we think it qualifies as hope. It does not. Wishing extends our egos into the future, but hope grows out of our faith. Hope is oriented toward what God is doing. Wishing is oriented towards what we are doing. Okay, here's the visual. We can picture wishing as though it were a line coming out from us with an arrow on the end, pointing into the future, pointing toward that thing that we most want to possess. Hope is just the opposite. It's a line that comes from God out of the future with its arrow pointed towards us. In the Bible, hope never indicates sort of like a vague or fearful anticipation, but it's always the expectation of something good. It's not like throwing a coin in a fountain and being like, oh, you know, I just, I hope this. No, that's not hope. It's grounded in the reality that there is a good future that only God can see. And in this sense, I want to tell you, it is foolish to hope in anything or anyone other than God because nothing else knows the future. Nothing else has the ability to point that arrow back towards us. Peterson continues, hope means being surprised because we don't know what is best for us or how our lives are going to be completed. To cultivate hope is to suppress wishing. To refuse to fantasize about what we want, but to live in anticipation of what God is going to do next. And here's where I hope this all comes full circle for you. Israel divided because they misplaced their hope. They stopped hoping and I think they started wishing instead. Here's the calf. This is your God now. 
You can just worship this. This is God. And I'm sad to say that so often we do know better. We place our trust in things that don't have an arrow in the future pointing back at us. We conflate wishing and hoping and our egos swell and we start hoping in things that might seem good but are not good. We would do well to consider the dangers of heart idols and cultural idols presented in things like career and possessions and recreation and reputation and friendships and popularity and scholarship and authority. These so often soak up our hope capacity and replace a hope in God. And I'm convinced that God desperately needs to place, needs, needs to us to place our hope in the right place for the sake of our church and the gospel going forward because the witness of a Christian with misplaced hope is ultimately pretty hollow. We need more hopeful Christians. We need more hopeful marriages. We need more hopeful employers and employees, and, and, and we need more hopeful Christian students, those of you students who are with us today. We need more hopeful friends. We need more Christians who will devalue the arrow that points out of them into the future and embrace the arrow pointing out of the glorious future from God. We need more Christians who are living in anticipation of what God is going to do next because we know he's good and his purposes are good and his future is worth hoping for. We need more Christians who will resist replacing God with the idols of our age. More Christians who don't seek the benefits of the kingdom, but rather the king, Jesus himself. Now next week we're going to start to get practical about how we can live as people of hope in a divided nation. But this morning, I want us to identify our favorite idols and the ways in which our hope has been misplaced. Friends, the most important thing that you can hear today is this. Jesus is the only thing worth truly hoping in. I can't help but men mention how much misplaced hope I've seen this week. No candidate, no party, no policy, no promise, no country, nothing that this world can offer is truly worth hoping in. If these things have taken first place in our heart and our mind, then we have slipped into idolatry, and those idols are powerful. We've misplaced a hope that only God is worthy of. In the divided kingdom of Israel, it serves as a cautionary tale for us. Instead, let's place our hope in God, the one who knows the future. Let's cast down our idols, and let's seek King Jesus alone. Would you pray with me? In the quiet of this space, would you just ask God to reveal to you, if he hasn't already, those heart idols or those cultural idols that you tend towards that have an outsized place in your life, in your heart, in your mind. Just take a moment and say, God, would you reveal those to me? I'm sure many of you, you already know. Ask God to reveal those to you. And I want you to just think about that space in your heart that those idols have taken up, what, what would it, can you just visually sort of see yourself walking into that chamber of your heart and just ushering it out? Ushering it out, sweeping it out of the room. 
and then opening the door and inviting God into that space. Lord God, we desire to cast down our idols. To cast down those outsized places in our heart that do not belong to you, Lord. We want to come and, we, and, and say we want a king, but we want King Jesus. And we recognize that when we say that, Lord, we're saying that there is not room on the throne of my life for both Jesus and the idols I love. You demand all of that space from us. You demand our hope be set on you. And Lord, you know our tendency to run back to the idols that we love. To slip back into misplaced hope. But Lord, would you give us the awareness with you on the throne of our lives to see those idols that are trying to creep in and to say, no, I will not allow those into my life and my heart. I will not allow them to take first place. I will not allow those to become outsized in my mind and in my affections. King Jesus, you are the only one that is worthy of our trust and our hope. And we place it yet again in you. Would you give us a fresh start today as we seek to follow you? Thank you, Lord, that you are a God of grace and a God of second chances. We thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Tyson, in his uh, little chapter on idolatry in that book, John Tyson, says at the end, he says, do you know what the antidote to idolatry is? It's worship. Mm. It's worship. So let's worship.